We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. We are finishing off the second week of school and no increased threat of COVID-19. Although I do have this annoying cold. Achoo! Oh, man. Here's Get a mask on! Where's your mask? I'm Scott Thompson. The gang's all here. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The Queen's uh, funeral is still continuing or uh, memorial or days of mourning. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, and I I don't mean to be disrespectful in any in, in any way, but boy. Boy, oh boy, this is, uh, this is a long process. And you gotta feel for, um, the family who, you know, honestly, they look like they're ready to collapse, uh, at any given time just from, um, what they've been putting in and, and meeting with people and, and heads of state and la, 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 la. And I know there's probably not a lot of sympathy for the monarchy or maybe not as much as there used to be, but, um, uh, boy, what a long process. And I'm watching uh, right now live footage of it. There used to be at one point one stream of people going by. Uh, now they've sort of got it into two or three streams to try to get uh, people going through faster. Uh, the lineups, uh, obviously, uh, massive. I mean, they paused the queue line for a while, told don't people not to join up, and then have since opened it again. But uh, they don't know what they're going to do yet as they get towards the end of this. As they're talking about close to a million people that will have passed by her coffin uh, by the time it is all over. Uh, two plane loads of Canadian dignitaries are uh, on their way. Uh, and uh, the King spoke with uh, Wells Parliament earlier on today. So uh, lots going on there. And uh, obviously, uh, we know the uh, Queen was uh, very fond of and oversaw the Argyles. Uh, the Argyle and Sutherland uh, Highlanders in Hamilton, and they are going. So listen, or a portion of them, they'll be represented, that's for sure. And here is a report from uh, Ken Mann. Glenn Gibson, Honorary Colonel of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of Canada, says their group of at least six is led by the regiment's commanding officer, Carlo Titarelli, and former Hamilton Police Chief Glenn DeCare. There was a a plan in place um, that has been updated annually, and so it's all been uh, pretty well carefully scripted as to maybe not the individual names, but the positions of people that will honor Her Majesty in this way. Gibson adds the delegation has been involved in rehearsals to ensure the procession goes seamlessly. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. You know what's bizarre too is uh, I'm watching this last night, late last night, and they showed you shots of London at four o'clock in the morning. And the military are all out there, not in their full uniform, but they're out there practicing. They're out there doing their thing and going through their maneuvers and whatever they're, you know, they have to do through this uh, parade, this motorcade what, uh, that uh, leads up to the funeral. So four o'clock in the morning, uh, yesterday in the UK, the streets are full and they're literally, you know, with a mock sort of, uh, uh, you know, where the, the coffin will be placed on in such, similar to the cannon uh, 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 apparatus that went down the street, except they're doing it with mock equipment. So very bizarre to see that going on uh, late last night at like 4 o'clock uh, in the morning uh, as they practice and get ready for Monday. Here's what uh, Argyle Honorary Colonel Glenn Gibson had to say. I can't identify that the leader of the group over there is... Uh, 
Honorary Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Glenn DeCare, who was our Hamilton Police Chief for a, a number of years. Uh, so Glenn is over there, along with the commanding officer, Colonel Carlo Titarelli. Uh, fascinating. So uh, Hamilton, very much represented, and we certainly know the story about the Queen and the Argyles and uh, the loss of Corporal Nathan Cirillo and them heading over there and meeting with uh, the Queen in her apartment so she could offer her condolences to the Cirillo family. Uh, obviously a huge connection there, and great to know a piece of Hamilton will be there uh, at this funeral coming up on uh, Monday. All right, so uh, lots of chatter going on, and we're going to talk about this later on in the show. Uh, about the monarchy and its value and, and whatever. And it's, well, it's only taken a week, I guess. <laughs> Couldn't wait till it was over. Let's get her on. And, and, you know, I remember having this debate when I was a kid. And, you know, when I was younger, I, I probably felt, yeah, what the, what's the big deal? Who cares? And as you get older, you appreciate your history more. And I think that's what it is more for me. It's, it's more symbolism than anything. Uh, but of course, the debate continues as to whether we should keep the monarchy or not. And the funny thing about this, and we're going to try to get to the bottom, this is not as easy as you think. You think, well, Barbados, all those other, they gave it up. Well, they don't have the constitution that Canada does. And in order to get rid of the monarchy, it's a massive undertaking, including reopening the constitution. So uh, with all due respect, I think Canadians have a lot bigger fish to fry than opening up the constitution. But, you know, for people who really don't know how extent of process it is to actually change this uh it makes for great water cooler talk doesn't it all right uh daryl bricker uh from uh polling lots of polling done in regard to uh this subject and, and is the monarchy still relevant and stuff and here's canadians thoughts on the monarchy from daryl bricker in a symbolic sense People kind of go both ways. They say, well, there's certain parts of this that we like because it's related to tradition and keeps us separate from the United States. And But then again, you know, if we're a mature country, should we really have the sovereign from another another nation as our head of state? So there you have it. That's Daryl Berker from Ipsos. Eight out of ten Canadians surveyed uh, by Ipsos believe uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth did a good job. Uh, a little more than half, 56% are confident the same will come from King Charles. 54% say uh, with the end of the Queen reign, it's time to end the formal ties to the British monarchy, 54%. Uh, the sediment highest in Quebec at 79%, lowest in Alberta at 42%. Uh, so it's uh, it's fascinating. It also be fascinating to see if uh, we all realize just how or, or what the process is to actually make that happen. We're going to try to find that out this afternoon. What do we have to do to rid ourselves from the mar- monarchy? Is it as easy as holding a poll? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. All right, um, man, I've been around here long enough to know. Uh, I've heard about this idea a few times. And after coming and traveling from Europe uh, or in Europe over uh, the course of last summer, it, it, or this, this summer that we're in now, it's amazing why we don't do more of this because you see it in all kinds of places across Europe, whether it's ferries or, or, uh, or hovercrafts or anything to get you from point A to point B, where the normal standard of getting you there just isn't working. Uh, and uh, here we go, a new hovercraft service could cut travel time between Toronto and Niagara region down to about 30 minutes. Hoverlink Ontario Inc. announced that it will uh, they have entered the final stage of approval to introduce a high-speed hovercraft service to the Golden Horseshoe, the first of its kind in North America, uh, op- hoping to op- uh, begin operation next summer, and it will travel across Lake Ontario between Ontario Place in Toronto and Port Weller in St. Catharines. 
uh, a trip that can take about two hours by car or train. And to talk about all of this, someone who could probably carry us all over on his back swimming, uh, Michael Pinball Clements, Hoverlink's uh, Chief Government Relations Officer and, of course, for, uh, former Argo. He's with us now. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you here. Absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for that intro. You, you're a good man. So, uh, Pinball, how did you get involved in this? So um, my, I have uh, uh, a wonderful friend who has a vivid imagination uh, and has um, some wonderful technical skills to uh, to go alongside of that. He uh, he 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 raced first. He uh, raced motorcycles and and uh, and then he actually had his ho- own team. He was always good at finding mm-hmm. the little advantage, and so he had some championship teams. And then he opened up WalMarts. Uh, a, yeah, all, all across Europe. Uh, he did some in Canada, and 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 so he's one of these guys who has uh, a grand vision, and mm. uh, he's one of my best friends, and uh, he is the founder of Hoverlink. So, uh, what's the plan here? Uh, first of all, tell us what the plan is, and then you can uh, you know uh, elaborate on what stage you're at now. So, what what's the idea here? Uh, so the idea here is um, uh, a hovercraft service, uh, having having a, a service that is uh, de- dependable, that you can take 365 days of the year, be 48 trips a day, uh, and uh, uh, it. it it goes over everything so that the hover is the concept there, the idea, um, because I, you know, when I, when I thought of hovercraft, when I think of craft, I think of being in the water, but it actually hovers over the water. So, so whether it's water, land or snow, it goes over everything. And, and not only that is extremely safe. Uh, so we have a safe, de- dependable and environmentally friendly service. Cause not only will it go uh, from Port Weller uh, over to, uh, 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 Ontario place, but there also will be an electric bus w- w- regardless of which way you're going. So if you're, you're, you're getting off at Port Weller, there's an electric bus that will take you to Niagara the la- on the lake or will take you to the Niagara Falls region. And, and so it's a green concept as well. And so this is, a, this is an idea um, that wh- whose time has come. And some would say the time is you know, already passed, that, that hmm. we should already have something in place like this. And so this is a game changer, connecting wine country to Scotiabank Arena, concerts, casinos, theater, sporting events, school trips. Uh, you know, we used to do a lot of school trips and we don't do them anymore. Mm. Uh, to, we got the natural, one of the natural wonders of the world and, and we don't bring young people over because the timing ratio of that. And so uh, this is a game changer. So how many people on board at one time? 180 people uh, can fit on the craft, and wow. and uh, so it it's yeah it's it, this is uh, an amazing idea, an amazing opportunity for us, and and uh, and he started this o- over 10 years ago, right? And so it's something that he really put a lot of time in, a lot of thought in. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people have you know there have been some people who have gone back and forth in different things, uh, but he he was looking for uh, something that that could be used every day and and uh, and be able to give um, a consistent uh, timing for people who might be going every day or people who who might only go you know once in a while. Hmm. So how close to a reality is this pinball? I mean, is this going to happen by next summer? 
uh, we we are a, a, a summer away and and uh so i uh i'm not a part of the process that 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 says okay this will be done here this right. will be done here uh but num- uh, next summer is the goal and uh just just truly excited about it and um and, and you know barring you know any any holdups any snags uh that next next summer will be off and running all right, Mike Pinball Clemens with us, Hoverlinks Chief uh, Government Relations Officer, former Toronto Argonaut. I hope that doesn't hurt too many uh, feelings here in the hammer. Uh, and a great idea that uh, t- his time has come. Uh, ferries, hovercrafts, whatever. We need to get from point A to point B. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all this. Real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today, okay? You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have talked about this before, and, you know, during the uh, global pandemic, we certainly know how much the uh, hospitality industry struggled and, and just in, in some cases disappeared. Companies went under, uh, others started, and, you know, it just was a whole different uh, situation that they had to pivot and and work without in-dining experience. And then all of a sudden, uh, this was behind us, we got out, and and wanted to support hospitality go to restaurants and, and and so on and you started to notice prices going up and you can understand that supply chain all that stuff and they got to make money back uh some are still going under and but also uh tips uh you know when you get the little uh payment thing the uh, machine and you tap your card swipe whatever it is that you're doing um, it prompts you for how much you want to tip and it would give various percentages and stuff now it's up around 30 percent one of the options you get, and uh, often it doesn't start as low as you would like and have to put in perhaps your own. Uh, you want to help, but is this a case of uh, taking advantage of a situation or just trying to survive? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author. Retail before, during, and after COVID-19. He's with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program again. We've talked about this before, but it seems to be getting more and more attention. Are people, consumers, becoming more and more aware that the the ask for tips has increased? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, you know, I remember not too long ago when pretty much everyone was giving 15%, and now suddenly, like, the new normal seems that you're really encouraged to give 20%. And to your point, the uh, the upper level has gone up. And uh, it's been like this for a while in some big sort of urban centers, but it's sort of spreading out to the suburbs now, and it's uh, causing a lot of debate. How do you justify this? I, I think it's kind of tough to justify. I mean, I think, I think you know, personally speaking, I know I've tipped a little heavier than I normally would after the mm-hmm. pandemic. To your point earlier that I felt sorry for the, for the serving staff, and I feel they had a, a tough ride. So I kind of gave a bit more. But at the same time, everyone's sort of watching their pennies now. And to your point earlier as well, food prices have went up because raw materials have went up and inputs have went up in ingredients. Um, but where does it end? I mean, we have to be careful here, uh, or the restaurant industry has to be careful or whoever, because if the anticipation is 30%, a lot of people are just going to stay home. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the restaurant industry is already in a really tough spot. I think I read somewhere that about half the restaurants are still kind of breaking even or losing money. So yeah. it's not it's not what it was before. And many will ask, well, the prices have gone up, so it's not like tips haven't gone up, but now it's a bigger piece of the pie. At what point do restaurateurs 
uh, realize that this is going to affect them. This is going to come out of their pocket. At what point do people say, well, I am not going to order that extra appetizer because my tip's so much? Yeah, I think they're going to feel it now. Um, I think they're feeling it now, depending on who you are. I mean, if you're going, if you're, if you're a fairly affluent customer, you know, I like to break society into sort of have and have nots. If you're a have, it's probably not really that, you know, bad for you. You're making a lot of money. You can afford this. If you're sure. a have not, like most of us, um, you're watching every dollar and it's impacting you now. I mean, it's already shown that people are eating out less. They're eating at home more. And, um, you know, there's a big debate about whether, you know, that's really on the customer to pay the serving staff more, whether the restaurant should pony up and offer a better wage. Uh, it's a big debate. Even some restaurants have taken tipping out altogether and they've increased prices and increased the wage for the serving staff. And again, many have complained that they really don't know where the money's going. They don't know if it's going to that person that has been nice and done a great job serving them at the table, uh, or perhaps even back to the those in the restaurant that are preparing the meal. I mean, we've heard situations where even the house takes a piece of that. So there's also that lack of transparency. The customer really doesn't know where it's going. That's a big point. That's that's a big issue. Um, you're right, because you know I always kind of was under the impression that some of it was split with some of the folks in the kitchen and things like that. But you're right, the house may take some as well. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, then you feel a little bit misled. And again, it's just, where does it end? I mean, we've already, we're already paying, uh, you know, 13% HST. No. And then on top of that, you know, this now. So it gets pretty pricey. Are you supposed to tip on the final bill, meaning all of the taxes, or just the food portion? I've had that debate with people. Yeah, it's a great question. I think most people tip on the food and alcohol portion before tax. Uh, um, you know, if you're a high roller, you might you might tip on everything, or if you've had one too many and you're you know you're not really controlling yeah. your keypad. But I think it's mostly before tax. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting. So, um, you know, nobody's asking you to do this, Brent, uh, Bruce. It's, it's, it's up to you. It's totally optional. You theoretically, you don't have to leave anything. But that being said, by putting that 30% on that machine before they sit it in front of you, uh, is that presumptuous? I mean, um, is there a, a disadvantage to even having that there? If they want to hit you up and, and, and if you, you know, if they want to pay 30%, good for them. But to put that in front of them, is that an obstacle? I think it really is. I think it is presumptuous to do that. I think especially during the time when a lot of people are hurting right now, I think it is presumptuous because, you know, everyone knows that just recently and up to even during before the pandemic, it was about 15%. If you were downtown at some fancy restaurant, maybe you have to pay 20% or you feel that's encouraged. But, you know, going to 30%, that's that's inflation. That's that's real inflation. That's greedflation, I think, right? Um, so, and don't get me wrong, I feel for the servers, but I yeah. think that's just too much to ask people. Uh, is there going to be more fallout on this to the point where we saw, where, where we see, uh, operations claw this back a bit, stand back a bit, uh, just, you know, pause. <laughs> they may have to, you know, I think, uh, realistically you might see a lot of restaurants, unless you're a, a big fancy restaurant that's in vogue, um, you're, you're probably going to suffer from this and you may have to revisit that. Um, and and lower it or come up with a different pay model for your servers and a different tipping model. I wonder if there's fallout at the table about this. If at the end it's the server, the server that gets you know the you know what's all this thirty percent. I mean, are they are they getting the feedback? Yeah, I think they are. I'm sure some people are complaining to the servers and say, "What's this about?" Um, the thing is, there's not as many servers around as there used to be. That's another issue. Right. Is that you know what? Um, that's one of the biggest sectors right now. Restaurant of unemployment. 
of sorry overemployment. You know, we don't we have too many jobs, not enough people, and um, you know that that's coming into it too. But maybe restaurants feel that they have to give even more, get even more wages, and maybe they're doing it on the backs of customers instead of paying it out themselves. So are we going to see that, Bruce, um, uh, better wages for the servers? I mean, I know it's usually minimum wage, and then your tips, you go from there. And then if you've got a great situation, you can make a ton of money. Um, but are we going to see are we going to see that change where, uh, you know, there, we'll look at it from the other angle? I think that you'll see some wage increases in uh, in this sector. But one of the things that businesses do, too, and they've asked the government to do more of this, is look for temporary foreign workers to come in from other countries at lower than minimum wage. Um, the other thing um, is a lot of international students uh, sort of take up these kind of jobs too. So it, that, that sort of uh, keeps wages sort of uh, in check, if you will. But, you know, I think that they're still going to need to pay more for servers because not a lot of people are going to want to do it. All right, Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, talking about uh, tipping fatigue. Is it setting in as we see... The percentages go up. Bruce, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. It just amazes me. I was a young person when uh, uh, Terry Fox uh, had his run and then succumbed to cancer. I remember being a young person and driving out west for the first time, seeing his statue along the Trans-Canada Highway. Uh, I believe it's just outside of Thunder Bay where his uh, run uh, unofficially ended uh, due to his cancer coming back. And then the CNE the following year holding this massive exhibition and uh, experience that you would walk through. And um, boy, there wasn't a dry eye a dry eye when you came out the other end of this. And what amazes me in all of this is here we are in 2022, and this person in this run still has uh, as much impact as it did way back when and has generated millions for cancer research. And the Terry Fox run is back again this weekend. And, of course, uh, they're everywhere. There's uh, obviously Hamilton Engage Park, Waterdown Memorial Park. All you have to do is uh, is hit the Internet, hit the web page, and uh, all of the details are there. Or you can even do virtual, uh, as they did last year because of uh, the pandemic. Let's bring in Michael Mazza, Executive Director of the Terry Fox Foundation, and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks, Scott, for, uh, for having me today. Uh, your thoughts, Michael, on the legacy of all of this and how long it has lasted, and it seems that this is just an annual event that people jump on every year. Yeah, I, um, I was reflecting on what you just said, and, and you, you know, for me, I was in grade six, and uh, my, our teacher, Ron Whitesick, had, had said, there's, there's this guy, and I want you all to go and, and see what he's doing and how he's doing it. And so we, we started watching the news, and we were, we were just, we couldn't believe it. And, um, you know, like you, uh, you know, the following fall, uh, Terry had to stop, and, and then the following spring, uh, you know, he passed away. And, and you know, we, we were, like, he just captured our attention. And, you know, for me, I've never been able to forget those moments either. And, and, you know, I, I think that's what he did for all of us. He, um, you know, he unified us. He, he alerted us to the importance of raising money for cancer research. Um, he, he was out there for everybody. And, and, um, you know, it's just so amazing that he was able to do that, um, uh, at such a young age. And, and, you know, still today, I'm, I'm amazed just like everybody else. And banging out 30K a day during the peak of this run. 
I uh, well, he would he, uh, he would do more than that. Actually, he was uh, he was averaging. Or was it thirty um, miles? He was averaging a full marathon every day. He did one hundred forty-three yeah, yeah. marathons in a row. And wow. um, I'm not—I've never been a runner. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll run the Terry Fox run and things like that, but yeah. I find that difficult. And and you know, to to go as far as he did, and you know, most marathoners they they need recovery time after every marathon. Yeah. And and he just went out there the next day and the next day and the next day. Uh, you know, he he was extraordinary. How much money has been raised since the first one? So since since 1980, when Terry first had this dream, um, over 850 million. So you know, Canadians uh, have have like they continue to respond to him. Um, you know, and and we put that money to to cancer research. And you know, Terry Terry knew then that cancer research was key. Uh, to improving outcomes. And, you know, over the last 40 years, um, you know, we've made tr- uh, tremendous gains in, in survivor outcomes. Um, and, you know, we still have a long way to go. Um, but, you know, what what he helped us see uh, has done so much for so many people. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. And I understand that the cancer that took his life is now a completely different situation if you were diagnosed with that today. Um, it, I mean, it is and it isn't. Like, you know, there, it, it's all still serious. Um, yeah. You know, and and you know, there, there's still too many people suffering from from too many different types of cancers. And yeah. you know, cancer, like it, that's what it is. There's over 200 types of cancer, and and it's complex and 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 it's difficult. Um, and you know, it's it's part of what makes it um, you know so hard for the researchers to to sort through. Um, but, you know, we're, we're now funding a project uh, that's bringing together over 50 universities and, and uh, hospitals across the country. Um, and we'll be all working on, on one project together. And, you know, it, it's a lot like Terry, right? He unified, uh, he brought people together, and, and that's the spirit of, of the way in which we continue to work. So how do people get involved and continue the tradition if they want to uh, be a part of all of this? So terryfox.org and, you know, go online, um, look up a run, register as a runner, uh, sponsor a runner, make a donation. Um, you don't have to run. You can walk, you can, you can wheel, you can cycle. Um, you know, you can, you can just show up and give money. Um, but it all starts at terryfox.org. And, you know, Terry's vision was if everybody did their part, then we could do something extraordinary together. Um, and so everyone, uh, think of what you can do and, and hopefully you'll, you'll join us in, in one way or the other over this weekend. Do numbers continually grow or has it weaned out and just, you know, held consistent? Uh, how is this going after so many years? Uh, numbers in terms of how much we raise or cancer numbers? No, numbers as far as how much you raise and people who participate. Um, you know, so uh, again, we, we, um, you know, each year we, we set our goals and, you know, we're, we're, our, you know, our annual goal this year is to raise a little over $30 million. Mm. Um, and, you know, so it's, it, it comes, we have over 20,000 volunteers uh, that are working with us across the country. Um, a lot, a lot of those gifts are, are grassroots, peer to peer, people asking their friends and family. Um, and it takes a lot of people to ask a lot of people uh, to raise that much money. TerryFox.org to find out more. TerryFox.org. And, of course, this Sunday the tradition continues right the way across the country, and there's many ways to get involved and continue the tradition of raising money for uh, cancer research. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Good luck this year. Be well. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. 
Michael Mazza, Executive Director of Terry Fox Foundation. This Sunday, Terry Fox runs across the country, terryfox.org. I want to bring in uh, Dan McTagg, who is uh, joining us, and the reason being uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. And this is fascinating. Germany takes control of uh, three Russian oil refineries. I want to talk about that and an interesting article that uh, has appeared, and this is in, uh, involving Canada's energy dilemma. And you can read this on our website at 900chml.com. Europe's energy crisis has Canada weighing future of oil and gas industry. And this is... Uh, uh, talks about, and there's been articles about this, a 76-year-old named Gwyn uh, Morgan, who was a former oil executive and now is just shaking his head at what is going on. He's also an environmentalist from Vancouver and just can't understand why we are in the predicaments that we are. And to talk more about this uh, is Dan McTagg. Dad, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, and thank you for asking. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the Germany taking control of these three Russian oil refineries. What does this mean? Well, it means Germany is set to uh, effectively put into place the sanctions that it, uh, it approved of, uh, along with uh, the rest of the European Union, or most of it anyways. Um, not only are they, of course, seizing assets which belong to the Russians, uh, they're also nationalizing some of their own uh, natural gas assets, uh, things like uh, Uniper and uh, VGF. There's a bunch of companies uh, that they're prepared to take over uh, in the hopes that uh, the price of natural gas won't go through the roof. They can control some of that, prevent them from going bankrupt, and uh, hopefully try to turn uh, and make uh, you know make <laughs> the best of a very, very bad situation uh, that hasn't really hit yet. And you're going to see a lot more headlines like this. Uh, but Russia's response, I don't think, will be anything less than predictable. Uh, then not only will they cut off gas, for sure, they are also going to likely cut off oil. At the same time, some countries, including European nations, will be looking at uh, putting caps on oil, which will, of course, uh, explode and, and blow up in their faces, because, of course, uh, Russia will simply sell what oil it doesn't want to sell or can't sell to Europe. Uh, for a reasonable price to India and China at a discount. So um, does this help Germany in the short term, long term? Uh, is this good? Obviously, uh, Germany is back in the refinery game. Well, in the refinery game, to be sure, but uh, to ensure that it uh, receives oil from the United States or from wherever uh, in order to process to keep it domestically rather than have those companies... Uh, trade them on the open market and try to get around and perhaps uh, help Russia along the way. It's basically seizing the assets of uh, Russian products under you know the guise of what Russia has done. Invaded the Ukraine, which is in violation of several international treaties, which Germany is prepared to uphold. Look, there aren't many cards that Germany can play here. Uh, it's going to, and here's the, the funny part, it's going to have to rely on global supplies of oil, much of it coming in from the United States, and much of that coming from the United States' reserve, not from its actual oil production, because we know that oil production in the United States is down a million barrels from where it was pre-pandemic. And I want people to be really aware of what that means. You know, you have the Biden administration the first day coming to, auto, coming to office, killing the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have provided enough oil to meet its own needs. Instead, you have this short-term quick fix. We have to do something from the Biden administration, so they're sending crude oil to Europe, and in particular Germany, LNG as well. But in the case of oil, much of that is uh, borrowed oil that's been sitting in reserves. It has to be replenished. So, uh, Scott, make no mistake, 
the errors committed in Europe in terms of putting all of its eggs in one basket and relying on Russia for its fossil fuels, which uh, everyone says we shouldn't be producing, except that we need it, uh, is going to cost far more than anything anyone has imagined. We're really only in the first inning of what is going to be a, a pretty long winter, and it's going to be a very painful one, which will include nationalization, which will include uh, you know, uh, restrictions, which will include, include rationing. Uh, Europe is going to face a winter unlike anything it's seen since 1945. Will uh, there eventually become a business case in the Prime Minister's eyes for eventually, uh, you know, striking up the Canadian liquid natural gas industry? Uh, many have well, said, well, it's yeah. going to take five years to do that. But my goodness, so we're in six months into this Russian invasion of Ukraine, which everybody said was going to last six days. So where will we be in five years? Well, apart from the dogs barking in the background, no worries. Uh, I think the business case has already been made. It's the prime minister's decision to ignore it. Uh, he does so at his peril. Uh, I, I'm more convinced in speaking to many, many people and interchange with people who are have no skin in the game, aren't pa- partisan, aren't politicians, who recognize that uh, we cannot commit the same errors that uh, that Europe did by you know by renouncing and turning our back on the very thing that keeps our economy going. That's oil and gas, like it or not. The world needs more of it. The question is, do we want Canada to be providing it, being the number three producer, sorry, the number three provable reservist in the world, or do we want the Russias, the Venezuelas, the Irans, and so on, uh, taking our place? That's an important decision that Canadians, I think, are increasingly making. Uh, the extent to which the Liberals under Justin Trudeau and their friends in the NDP are ignoring that, while at the same time borrowing heavily to maintain our standard of living is uh, likely not to uh, lead very well for the uh, do very well for the uh, for the government in the long term i think this policy in particular leading to unaffordability energy and security is going to see uh, the demise of the liberal party in 2025 if not sooner shutting off the taps before there's alternatives that can replace them that's where we are but boy it looks good doesn't it uh dan mctagg with us president of canadians for affordable energy former liberal mp with us dan as always thanks for the time be well and as yourself as well. Have a great weekend, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today, I have proclaimed this new constitution, one that is truly Canadian at last. When was that? Was that 1981? 82. I should know. Um, that is the Queen, and it was Justin Trudeau's dad. Pierre Elliott Trudeau signing the Constitution and uh, giving it giving Canada its own Constitution, and with that, uh, pretty much solidifying the market, uh, the monarchy. And you know, I remember being a young guy and debating uh, in school the the monarchy. Do we need it? Uh, and this was the time around the Constitution being signed, and as having this discussion. And what always seems to fall by the wayside is people have, although they all have an opinion on it, nobody has any idea of how difficult it is to make this. Happen. Happen. But to gauge us and where we are, uh, let's bring in Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos uh, Public Affairs. A very cool uh, uh, research being done for Global News. Majority of Canadians want a referendum on monarchy on, on monarch ties after the Queen's death. So, sixty uh, percent of Canadians want a referendum held to determine whether the country stays tied to the British monarchy. Another fascinating discussion. Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos, is with us. Sean, uh, great to have you here. Hope you're doing well. I am, thank you. 
So lots of oper- uh, lots of opinion on this, and it, and it, it, it whatever sort of issue that the uh, royals are in the news for, this discussion seems to come up. Obviously, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, it's 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 here again. But do the, do you think the average Canadian has any idea uh, how difficult this would be to do? Likely not. And based on the results of our poll, I think that we're still a long ways away from seriously having that discussion. Uh, Certainly a a majority support having uh, a referendum. It's a slim majority. Uh, But uh, when we look at at the results of the poll and how a referendum, and of course it comes down to the question, but you know what that would look like. um, Currently, we only have 54% of Canadians saying that we should and ties the monarchy, meaning 46% uh, disagree and that we should continue to have the monarchy. But, you know, I, I doubt that this is a simple majority threshold, given the the complexities of constitutional change, and it would require so many of the provinces to agree, etc. And what we're finding here is that outside of Quebec, only a minority supports cutting ties with the monarchy. Hmm. That, that national number is buoyed by the fact that most Quebecers believe we should be severing ties. And that's that's not new, though. So how has this changed over the years? How, you know, before pandemic, after pandemic, or even 10 years ago? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's certainly, um, there's a stronger desire to cut ties now than there was a decade ago. But even just last year, 59% thought that we should um, end the monarchy's ties with Canada uh, after Queen Elizabeth died. Now that she is, has passed, in fact, we're seeing support for abolishing the monarchy lower than it was. Now, this might just be because we're caught up in a you know, sentimental moment uh, and, and reflecting on the fact that she was a great queen. 82% of Canadians believe she did a good job in her role as monarch. And, and I, I challenge you to find another public figure with such high approval ratings. It, it likely can't can't happen. So I, I suspect that this sort of rebound that we've had um, is, is as a result of this. It could be short-lived, but, you know, again, uh, a lot of this is driven by feelings in Quebec and those uh, that the monarchy is in a much different place in English Canada. Um, you bring up a, uh, a valid point here, uh, Sean, in, in that um, with the Queen's death, how do people uh, move forward with this? Uh, lots are talking, and we assumed it would, the debate about whether we abolish this or not. But do you think in some way, with what we're going through with the funeral and so on, this is solidifying the monarchy? Well, it could, at least for the time being. What we know is is that even though the Queen was, was well well-liked, uh, and, and people thought she did a good job, they're not quite so sure about King Charles III. Yeah. Uh, only a slim majority are confident that uh, he will do a good uh, job in his role. I mean, I think, you know, there is an acknowledgement that, that how they may feel personally about him and, that and you know, they're still not recovering in their minds over what happened with Diana. You know, ultimately, he's had over 70 years to prepare for this job. Um, mm. and so he's actually probably the best qualified person Ever, uh, you know, because he's been the longest serving Prince of Wales to 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 take on on this role. So there's different, I think, opinions uh, for his you know professional ability and how you might feel of him about him uh, personally. But when you look further down the line, 
people really like William, the new prince of yeah, Wales. Yeah. 66% like him, only 18% don't. So even, you know, this may be a Charles III kind of interregnum where if we can get past the next, you know, whatever it is, two decades, maybe longer, given the, given the history of the family, hmm. um, you know, for many people, they're, they're looking forward to, I think, William eventually becoming king and what that might mean for a, a modern monarchy. Another interesting point, uh, It's it, you're right, it's not like there's any surprise here with Charles. They knew that this was coming, and even look beyond that to the future, and perhaps, uh, yeah, maybe we'll just uh, pause for a bit until Will comes around, and then we'll get interested uh, again. And certainly, the, you know, Chuck's not going to be there for, for 70 years like his mother. That's right. Yeah. So only 47% agree that King Charles and uh, Camilla, his queen consort, will keep the monarchy relevant to Canadians. But when you look towards uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales, William and Catherine, 60% agree they will help to keep the monarchy relevant to Canadians. So I, I think, you know, if, if I was a betting man, um, you know, the popularity of William and Kate, my guess is likely secures the future of the monarchy, at least in Canada, for a few more decades. That's a good point. Um, what about uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous issues and indigenous uh, perception of this in that community? Well, we don't have poll results among Indigenous Canadians, but what we do know is that one of the strongest arguments for abolishing the monarchy uh, is that um, yeah. a majority agree, 57%, that the monarchy is too linked to the history of colonialism and slavery to have a place in today's Canadian society. And and while Canada is you know, still down the road towards reconciliation with its indigenous peoples, there is the feeling that the the the, the crown um, is is neglecting to acknowledge its role in colonialism and the impact that it has had on indigenous peoples around the world. So that's certainly one of the strongest reasons for abolishing the, mon- the monarchy. When you see the Queen's numbers so high in what people thought of her and the job that she had done, uh, are you surprised there's that much of a d- difference between her and Charles? I mean, obviously there's a lot of history there with Diana and such, uh, but at the end of the day, from a, a philanthropic standpoint and, and beliefs, I mean, Charles is huge on climate change ahead of his time many you know have said are you surprised that there's so much of a difference between the two of those yeah and what it means is that people have a distinction between the institution and the person which is fascinating yeah. because queen elizabeth ii worked so hard to uh, almost erase that distinction right she was she in, in her role as monarch she, she kind of wasn't an individual person it was all it was all the crown um, uh, King Charles and his work as, as the Prince of Wales was actually much more vocal about these things, and he's acknowledged that he has to step back uh, some of the roles of uh, charity and stuff. But I think we will see him leverage his power as convener to keep some of these things um, in, in the forefront of discussion, like climate change. And quite frankly, I personally think that that's that's a good thing. Uh, I think it brings a, a, another purpose to the role. Sean Simpson with us, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, a new poll showing many Canadians uh, want to cut ties with the monarchy and perhaps at least have a referendum on such. However, we're not sure they're uh, well aware of exactly what it takes to do that, which is pretty near near impossible. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's been my pleasure. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about a recession. Are we in it? Are we out of it? We know it takes two negative quarters, uh, a two-quarter story of negative growth, I believe, to uh, officially indicate that we are in a recession. Uh, Certainly not there, but there's many uh, economic indicators like FedEx. They say their packaging and shipping data indicates what is happening. Is that a good barometer? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well, thank you. Glad to be with you. So is FedEx a good economic indicator here? So I, I, I hate to do this to FedEx, but I'm going to say no. It feels to me like FedEx wasn't following a story that you and I have chatted about around a Canadian company called Shopify. Shopify mm. was a company that over the last couple of years during the the best or the worst of the pandemic helped a lot of businesses move online and they expanded their business and they made the assumption that the way it was during the pandemic was going to continue on. Now, Scott, at the at the height of the pandemic, 18% of our retail dollars were spent online. That was great news for Shopify, but it was also great news for FedEx and Purolator and, and uh, Canada Post, because if we bought online, then someone had to facilitate delivery, and that was pretty much those companies. But where it was at 18% online, it has dropped down to 12, and we think it's actually at this moment heading closer towards 10%. Pre-COVID, it was at 8%, and it really represents a shift in where we're doing our buying. We're still spending the money, but rather than doing it online, we've gone back to stores. And so if you're an actual bricks-and-mortar retailer, your life is a lot better on the other hand, if you facilitate online transactions like a FedEx, like Canada Post, it has not been the last a good few months for you. Therefore, I don't think it's a, a, a recession on its way. Let me just try that one other way. My next, after I read that story, my first thing I did is I went to the nice people like Mastercard and Visa, the Interact people, the online transaction processors, and have wanted to see whether their businesses have gone down and the answer is no. So we're still spending money the way we were at during the depths of the recession, but we're doing it at the bricks and mortar stores, not the online stores. Is this putting too much emphasis on the new normal? I remember when we only would see FedEx planes in the sky at one point. Uh, now, of course, that has changed with travel and such. Did they predict too much growth here? Is that what happened? That's the short answer. Now, again, Scott, I know if I'm looking 10 to 20 years down the road, none of us really love shopping. And so we know little by little online is replacing bricks and mortar, but it got a big shot in the arm during COVID because we were just afraid to get out of our cocoon and shop. In some cases, we weren't even allowed to get out of our cocoon and shop. And those people who were benefiting from it said, aha, what we've done is accelerated the trend and we'll never go back. Well, turns out that when we got the green light and we could go back, many of us have gone back. We still think in the long term, there's going to be lots of good news here in the online world, but it's it's going back. It's not going to be as fast as the transition everyone thought. Many have said, you know, hybrid version of whatever, nothing is going to be the same. That being said, obviously retail, people want to get out and touch and squeeze and such now. Is that short-lived for retail before the balance sways back to online? 
Yeah. Well, Scott, again, I wish it was a one size fits all answer. I can tell you, uh, for instance, grocery shopping, grocery, yeah. buying groceries online has not gone on as big as you'd think. If I'm buying something standardized, a box of cookie, a jar of peanut butter, a jar of jam. Yeah, it doesn't matter where I order it from. It's the same. But if I'm buying vegetables and meat, you know, I want the, the steak to be marbled just so I want my my papaya to be just so squishy, and I can't get that in an online world. Now, clothing, in theory, yes, uh, I could buy some of that online, but even then, the problem becomes, how do I try it on? You know, that sweater may look nice uh, on the mm. rack or in the on the shelves, but when I try it on, oh, geez, it doesn't look quite the same. Yes, you can do that online, and you can do it through sending the boxes back and forth, but it's just not as convenient as walking into a store and finding what you want today. And these are the challenges. So what we're finding is uh, there are some aspects of retail, standardized things that are much more easily moved into the online world, but there are many things that are not standard and they are going, they're not going into the online world anywhere near as quickly. And that's the challenge that faces them. So Shopify is not done, FedEx is not done, but they need to resize themselves for the demand that they're facing as we head into the Christmas season. Uh, so it's not so much uh, about the amount we buy, it's what we're buying, and it will be just delivered different ways depending upon what the product is. What are the FedExes of the world going to do in the short term to adjust to this? How much of an impact does it have on the delivery business? Yeah, well, let me just go back to Shopify for a minute if I can. Uh, they actually downsized their workforce by about 20%. Therefore, it will not shock me if I hear that FedEx, I think in the story, in fact, that I read, FedEx was going to park 90 planes. They were closing 75 to 100 uh, drop-off outlets as they were doing it, letting some people go. They used some independent contractors. Many of the independent contractors have said, as volumes have come down, they're not making the same kind of profits. They may have to go or they're going to want bigger shipping fees. You're going to hear a lot of these stories over the next little while until we get to November and December. And then as always what happens, when the Christmas rush comes, we have to weigh the convenience of buying it today versus dealing with mall parking lots. And more and more people are saying, eh, I'd rather buy it online. So mm -hmm. we get these lovely things, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Those will still be good years ahead of us, good days ahead of us. But there will be some right sizing for businesses that over predicted the penetration of online shopping. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, FedEx, feeling the pinch of you going into the store now. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about, uh, <laughs> you know, some of are saying, uh, I'll read you the headline in a sec, but obviously lots of debate about uh, the monarchy. Uh, Section 41 of the Constitution Act, a full abolition of the office of the Queen would require Parliament, the House of Commons, the Senate, and all ten provinces and territories to unanimously agree to open the Constitution and, um, and, and start uh, and start negotiating and that doesn't even include the indigenous communities so um i i think it's pretty safe to say that uh you know it may be a while before this happens so i wouldn't hold your breath and uh in case you weren't aware uh we're coming out of a global pandemic and there seems to be a lot more uh, bigger fish to fry at this point you might say uh interesting though love to hear from you send us a note scott thompson at 900 chml.com and the phone's always open another big debate and this was in the globe and mail and the headline reads for some in britain Queen Elizabeth's farewell is too long, it's too costly, and it's too disruptive. And as we're at this stage, uh, my goodness, uh, 
it does seem to be going on for a long period of time, although those that are lining up in the queue, it's not slowing them down. But is this becoming too costly, a, a, uh, a ritual, a monarchy, a monarchy to keep up and running? Let's bring Eric Cam in. He's a professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. He's with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, but are you telling me the queen died? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. I know there's, at this point, I think you can make jokes about it, Eric, because I mean, once you get past the seven day mark, uh, it, it is, but I guess there's a lot of people there to pay tribute. So your thoughts here, Eric, is the world getting the bang for the buck out of this, what it costs? Well, I mean, I, you really touched on the most important aspect of this conversation, which is this is really um, not terribly important, not not with all due respect to the passing of Her Majesty, but yeah. in terms of an uh, of an economic argument, what we're really doing is we're playing the opportunity cost game because they're saying that the price of this sucker is going to run to about ten ten or eleven million dollars, and that includes the security and and, and other pecuniary uh, expenses. So the question is, in terms of opportunity cost, is well, if they're going to put that money toward saying goodbye to the queen what are they not going to do with that money i mean is that money that was earmarked for something else and now that's not going to happen it's just going to go into um saying goodbye to the queen um so you can look at the uh, that sense and you can also say that the people that are not going to go to work and not going to be earning and 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 money's not going into cash registers during the funeral well that that adds to the cost as well so you have the dollar cost of putting uh, putting the queen under Westminster Abbey, combined with the opportunity cost of what are the people doing that aren't working. But then, Scott, if you really want to discuss this, then you've got to look at the other side of the coin, um, literally, and talk about the fact that they're get they're guessing that between seven hundred and fifty thousand and a million people are going to make their way into London and surrounding areas to mm-hmm. celebrate her life. And now you got to figure that while those million people are hanging out in the UK, they're going to be going to hotels and restaurants and bars. And we know that spending has a multiplier effect. And so that was a very long-winded way of saying, I'm not exactly sure, because you're dealing with the cost and then you're dealing with the benefit. Now, if you're asking me for an educated guess, believe it or not, I think the media is wrong. I think they're looking for a story, with all due respect to some of the articles out of the UK. And I think the multiplier effects of having a million people come visit your town is going to outweigh the fact that for six hours, there's going to be people not working. Um, But as you said, and to your point, um, the UK is a big area. It has its own central bank, and this will not jettison that area into any type of meaningful recession. So, in other words, the royals are still a draw for the UK. Well, they're still a huge draw, whether Elizabeth is alive or dead, and I'm still dealing with this shock you gave me. But, yeah, the, the point is, you know what? Nothing, well, come on, if you can't laugh, um, if you, th- there's nothing that, that is more important in an economy than spending. Nothing. And so spending trumps non-spending. So again, there's going to be people not spending for six hours as they sit at home and watch this, or they spend, you know, seven or eight kilometers long a lineup to see the the casket go by. Okay. Yeah. Is that going to add up? Yes, it's going to add up. But I think it's going to be dwarfed by the fact that all of these people are making a pilgrimage to this area and spending their hard-earned dollars. When you take that spending and you throw the multiplier effect with it, 
it actually might be a financial coup for the UK. And that doesn't make good story or good copy for the daily rags in the UK. But I think that's actually how it's going to play out. Is it worth it for countries like Canada? Well, let's be specific. About, is it worth it for Canada? Um, now, that's a better question. And the answer is uh, probably no. Uh, because that money, those millions, it, it, potentially billions with the effects of how multipliers work, they're not coming into Canada. They're they're going out of Canada. So we are in a tougher position, and I can argue that that money it comes out to a net negative for countries that aren't, aren't in the UK. Um, but again, you know, uh, on the whole, we're not talking about billions and billions of dollars here, Scott. So... Um, and, and, and you know what, frankly, if I can get on my, my pedestal for a second, it doesn't matter. As long as we are part of the Commonwealth, as long as we're under the monarchy, Canada's going to celebrate these things for better or for worse. So every now and then, there's going to be a cost incurred. We all know that. Eric Cam with us, economics professor, Toronto Metropolitan University and the economics of the Queen. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Stay healthy, Scott. You too. All right, we remember just a few weeks ago our populist uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, because you know that does exist on the left. Handgun bans, taxing the rich, saving the planet. Well, who the hell doesn't want to do that? Um, and remember that many said this whole handgun ban is just a red herring. If you really want to solve the problem, you address the guns coming in across the border. Uh, police saying 90% of the guns committed uh, committing crimes here are getting through the U.S. border. They're not people who are handgun owners and you breaking into their house and stealing their guns. Uh, this was made by police. This latest comment, Halton Regional Police Chief uh, uh, Steve Tanner said it's time to tackle the problem of the guns at the border being brought in. Uh, now, we must clarify that uh, the deadly shooting of Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong was still waiting for the ballistics on that weapon. But as the chief pointed out, obviously not a lawful handgun owner. So uh, where does this leave the discussion moving forward? Let's bring in Matt Gurney, co-founder of The Line, a Substack magazine, and a columnist for the National Post and TVO, and is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm well. It's, it's a frustrating topic, though. I mean, it's always worth talking about this stuff. I wish we didn't have a dead cop in the background of the conversation. Yeah, good point. Uh, but, you know, whenever we talk about this, it's always, it seems, especially from the liberals, it's about banning handguns. If we're so sensitive to this topic, if this if this topic is such a buzzword, such a, you know, a, 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 a hip line to be throwing around, why are we not really solving the problem, which is, and they've talked about this for years, and that's addressing the guns coming in across the border. And I know you can do both, but clearly there's more emphasis on banning handguns than there is on the border look in life you can do two things when presented with a serious problem you can do the hard work of coming up with a real solution or you can kind of talk about it a little bit and then hope it sorts itself out or at least that you won't get blamed for it when it goes badly our liberals unfortunately on gun control and especially in recent years have gone kind of bonkers, and they have decided that they're going to give up actually doing things that will improve public safety in favor of big, showy, demonstrative moves. And this is pretty recent, guys. Like, I've been writing about gun control for 15 years. This is one of the weirdo little topics I have. Every journalist has pet topics, and this is one of mine. I've been writing about gun policy for 15 years. Up until about three years ago, 
the conservatives and the liberals disagreed on guns. There were policy disagreements. There were. But they were within sort of the same sphere. Conservatives wanted a little more of this, a little less of that. The liberals were the reverse, and they would, you know, send out press releases explaining to the world how bad the other guy was. What happened a few years ago is that Justin Trudeau loses his majority. He becomes increasingly dependent, I would even say utterly reliant, on holding on to key seats, particularly in the 905. Hmm. And gun politics is to his advantage there. So what we have gotten since 2019 is an increasingly bizarre series of proposals that don't actually accomplish much. They're incremental. They all just sort of move things forward a tiny little bit, but they get a whole bunch of press releases out about them. They don't address public safety, but they address what Justin Trudeau's real concern with guns are. There's a public safety concern. Eh, He's not that interested in that. The real concern is every time he talks about guns, it helps him politically in the part of the country he's dependent on. What we saw from Chief Tanner a few days ago, look, I don't even even want to tell you guys. I'm sure you're in the same boat. How many police press conferences have you seen over the years, right? Like, cops speak their own language, and they are trained to reveal as little as possible. The chief was angry. And you have to have watched a lot of cop talk to be able to pick that up. But he was. Because we're not talking about the real issues here. In my community in Toronto, there's guns, there's shootings sometimes. People out, you know, they're they're shopping, they're getting groceries, they're walking the dog, and there's bullets flying around. We had a dead cop that we're now dealing with here. We're, until we talk about the real issues, we're never going to make progress on this. But we're never going to talk about the real issues so long as the liberals see electoral advantage in talking about other things. But if the gun issue is such political hay for the liberals, if this is such a big issue, rather than, you know, run with the handgun ban, which, again, is just it's populist politics, why not actually solve the problem? Then you'd be I mean, my goodness, that's punting it through the uprights. Then you'd, you'd be you'd be the hero. So why not just if it's a big issue for them and, 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 it, and, it, and it appeals to their base, why not just address it? Then they couldn't talk about it anymore. Like, if they actually go Is it easy to do? How difficult is it, Matt, to actually have that discussion? What are the obstacles to getting this done? Why haven't any governments been able to, is it sitting down with the U.S., whatever? How do you make this work at the border? Honestly, at the border, you can't. Like, here's the thing. Like, we, we live in this weird moment culturally where a lot of people are talking about we need to stop um, the criminalization of drugs because the smugglers will always get through. But also, we should ban gun imports because apparently smuggling doesn't work for that. Did you guys see the story a couple of weeks ago? It, it was, well, I guess a couple of months ago now. It was before the summer. It was somewhere uh, in southwestern Ontario where, like, a guy out for a walk found a drone in a tree near the U.S.-Canadian border, and the oh, drone yeah. had a bag full of guns under it. Yeah. Like, you're never going to solve this issue. Like, anyone who thinks they figured out how to stop gun smuggling should then immediately pivot to, like, every other product we've uh, prohibited over the years, like alcohol and booze, and we'll... Well, we just need to buy some... Drugs, we need we need some buy, We need to buy some drones, Matt. we got to fight fire with fire here. Exactly. Anti-drone drones. Look, you're never going to stop smuggling. But what, like, rather than admit that and say to the Canadian people, look, guys, like, we're going to have to focus on 
you know, gangland diversion tactics, job programs in communities, all really good stuff, but stuff that will pay off electorally in 15, 20 years, right? Because that's how long it takes this stuff to work. Justin Trudeau goes, yeah, well, you know, I'm two, I'm two points down in the polls, and every time I talk about guns, it's really, really popular. But, I mean, the incredible thing is, handguns are registered in this country, and they've been for almost 100 years. The RCMP knows where every, every legally owned and registered handgun in this country is, and there's hundreds of thousands of them. They could ban them tomorrow. They could just sit down either do like an executive order or get together with the NDP and come up with a piece of legislation and just give everybody 30 days to turn them in at their local police station or face criminal sanctions. But they're not going to do it, right? Because it actually doesn't suit their political interests to do that. The political interest of our liberal government is best served by every time there's a shooting, either here or in the States, to roll out some incremental step on gun control in this country that lets them talk about gun control, but doesn't actually really require them to do much of anything. So consider their recent move on guns. They haven't banned them. They have frozen them. Yeah. So all the, all the handgun owners out there, again, hundreds of thousands of them, you can keep them. You just can't buy a new one. Yeah, if this was a public safety threat, yeah. like what, what responsible would government go, we have decided this pressing threat to public safety is good at its current level. Like, let's let's maintain the current yeah. level. Of We're good now. Danger. Yeah. All right, Matt Gurney with us, co-founder of The Line, a Substack magazine and columnist for the National Post, NTBO. Matt, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Matt. Have a great Friday. Halton Regional Police Chief Steve Tanner says it's time to tackle the problem of illegal guns uh, coming across the border. They're responsible for 90% of the gun crime here. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. So I'm watching the uh, funeral stuff all day. It's like on in a screen. So passing by, lining up for like 12 hours, however long it takes, David Beckham, professional soccer player, he's standing there in his suit and his tattoos, and he's just like a commoner, man, walking through the line. Also, uh, Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta. Uh, was just interviewed on the news uh, minutes ago, and he's also standing in line and waiting to uh, see the Queen. So that is fascinating. All right, uh, let's bring in Scott Radley. I don't believe he's lining up to see the Queen. He's going to host the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. He is with us now. Scott, I hope you're well. I am, and good for Bex. You know, like yeah. how, how many something? of us would like the celebrities to normally cut right to the front of the line and get a yeah. VIP escort to say, I'm, I can wait. I mean, what else is? David I don't think Beckham Joe Biden's going to wait. I don't think Joe Biden's going to wait in line. But then again, they may have a private viewing sort of thing, right? But yeah, for Beckham to do that is amazing. Uh, you know, Joe Biden gets up to the front in the seniors line. Uh, but David Beckham, <laughs> what else is he doing with his time? He's a retired soccer player. He's got time. He can wait. It's okay. There you go. All right. Uh, the discussion about how important the monarchy is, Ipso doing a poll and saying uh, people want a referendum on all of this. I find this absolutely hilarious because I'm old enough to know when this, like, this has been going on forever since we signed the Constitution. And I find, the, I find it interesting that we don't discuss what we have to do to get rid of the monarchy yes. before we yes. start whining about getting rid of it. But I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's great water cooler talk. But Section 41 of the Constitution Act, full-blown abolition of the Queen... Uh, 
office of the Queen would require Parliament, the House of Commons, the Senate, and all ten provinces and territories to unanimously agree to open the Constitution in order to amend it. We can't even agree on health care. How the hell are we going to do this? So, and the second question is, like... do we need like, to do that? Even well, beyond and, and, whether we could do it, do we, do we right now... Well, like, is that a we, priority? Is that a priority right. for Canada right now? Is that on your top ten list of things we got to get done? That's right. Like, we remember, if you're old enough, and I mean, I, 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 I guess we're old enough now, we remember, like, Meech Lake and other things do we need because as soon as you crack the vault a little bit it's not just the essence of the monarchy that starts wisping out in clouds it's all kinds of other things in the constitution do we really want to crack the seal on the whole constitution discussion again because i guarantee you that the minute you do that we're not just talking about the monarchy there's a hundred other things and a hundred other grievances and provinces and territories. And hey, while we're here, yeah. let's do this. This would be, I'm sorry. I look, whether you love the monarchy or not. And frankly, that's not really the issue. It's do you, we got to think this thing through before we start. Do you really want to go down this road knowing that probably within minutes, our four by four is going to be stuck in a giant pool of mud and we're all going to be out pushing and getting messy because that's what's going to happen if we do this it's like saying who who wants to go to disneyland it's like well of course uh, everybody wants to go to disneyland disney world but you got to walk to get there oh maybe not there it's it's just to me it is on the list of things that are really important in a country where we've got inflation running wild and a debt that's growing out of control and massive deficits and this and that and the other thing and a million different things. This would seem to be about number 12 million on my list of important things to deal with. Once we've dealt with all that other stuff and our, our politicians are sitting in Ottawa in the House of Commons and they've sworn them all like the day has started. They're all twiddling their thumbs and the, the Speaker of the House says, Anybody got anything? Because I'm out. I'm out. Like we're we're the, the the slate is bare. Well, anyone got anything? Then all right, stand up and say, how about we talk about this? But until then, I think we got enough else to do. And again, um, it, it amazes me how many people will will wage in on this discussion, will weigh in, sorry, on this discussion and roll up the sleeves and yeah, yeah, and passionately get rid of them, but have really no idea what the process is to do that or what it would entail. I find that fascinating. But Scott, like, okay, your point is valid, but when exactly have, you know, and I don't mean to be firing bullets <laughs> across the bow here, but when exactly have we demanded a sense of great knowledge in order to have great opinion? Yeah, good point. Right? We, 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 how many, we have, look, there are people who know an awful lot about an awful lot of things, and there's other people who know jack squat about anything. They are the loudest ones usually who are yelling the loudest without a yeah. clue. And I'm not pretending that you or I are the all great and knowledgeable Oz. But surely I think that we should at least before, as I say, before we start listening just to the loudest screamers, have someone with the common sense and with the knowledge say, just so that we know if we do this, this could happen. Do we yeah. still want to do this? And uh, then maybe have the adults in the room say, we got other problems. We got other things to deal with. I don't know that we need to be bogged down in this for the next year. 
How about that health care? How about that health care? There you go. That, there's uh, one of them. Housing, right. health care, transit, mm. water on reserves. I mean, you go down the list. I don't know that we need to be talking about the Constitution right now. Enjoy your beans and toast. Uh, thank you, Scott. Have a great show and a great weekend. We will. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills, Diana and Dave, for all helping with the show. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, in a monarchy slash parliament democracy, a leader can be sent packing and resign, as we saw with Boris Johnson. In a republic like south of the border, leaders who lose just seem never to go away fast. But whether you are pro or anti-monarchist, we are witnessing the end of an era of a young lady who was a princess, became queen, and served her country in both war and peace. May she now rest in peace, Mr. Lowe. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.